Across this uh, series, these uh, 10 uh, talks, the Bible build-up, the Bible in 10, uh, we've been exposing the story of shame. I've got a couple more short stories for you this morning of when I was made to feel shame. When I was made to feel on the outer, to feel like I didn't belong. Uh, One story comes from when I was a a, a kid, uh, one from when I was a young adult, and one just from this last week. Uh, When I was a kid, we used to have a babysitter who lived just down the road, a teenage girl whose name was Andrea. Andrea was a lot of fun. Uh, I liked hanging out with Andrea. Um, and she was one of the older kids in our street. Lots of other kids liked Andrea too. She had lots of friends uh, her age, other teenagers, that would come and hang out in her front yard. She actually had a dance club, not just any old dance club, but a break dancing club that would meet in her front yard and kids would gather there um, on... um, after school to do break dancing. Now, one time I thought I would really like to be in the break dancing club. Uh, so I went down and I was sitting on the fence uh, watching these uh, older kids, these teenagers, learning how to do all these break dancing moves with a stereo that was as big as a car in those days. I got bold enough that I thought I'd go and join in. So I turned my hat around backwards, climbed down off the fence and walked in. And there one of the biggest boys stepped up to me. He spat on me and said, you don't belong here. When I was a young adult, I was kayak racing and training in Slovenia. And this was about a, a bit of a Cool Runnings moment. You know the movie Cool Runnings, Jamaica. Um, I, it was a little bit like that. We were training on this uh, uh, technical river in Slovenia and I hadn't prepared as well as I should have and I did something that, well, looked like I didn't really know what I was doing. And this American guy came up to me when we got off the river. He said, hey, Aussie, you don't belong here. Go home. Uh, This week I was sitting in one of our local cafes, uh, doing a little bit of sermon prep. Mostly I was just reading my Bible. I could hear uh, some ladies at a table nearby having a conversation about the same-sex marriage, uh, postal survey and the debate, and they were particularly stirred up uh, about Christians, that all Christians are going to vote no and, and how horrible... Uh, Christians are and how horrible uh, the church is. Uh, my ear was tuned in but not paying a whole heap of attention to what was going on, uh, was, was uh, writing more of this sermon about belonging and not belonging. When it was time to go and pick the kids up from school, I stood up, I put my laptop in my bag, I put my Bible in my bag and when I turned around, here was one of these ladies, she was in my face. She says, I hate you. Christians like you who read the Bible should not be allowed to breathe. You ruin the world. I never want to see you in this cafe again. You don't belong here or anybody else like you. We've all felt like we've been on the outer. We've all been made to feel shame. Christian psychologist Kurt Thompson says, we're all born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. Whether we're a kid who just wants to be included in the breakdancing club, 
whether we're a sports person, young adult who just wants to be accepted on the sporting field with everybody else, whether you're the, well, the best or the second best or the 100th best, or whether we want to sit in a cafe and read our Bibles. We all want to feel like we belong. Ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, shame makes us feel like we don't belong, makes us feel like we're not accepted, that we need to hide from God and from one another and sometimes we feel shame when we shouldn't. Sometimes we're made to feel shame when we shouldn't, like perhaps in some of the stories I've shared this morning. Sadly, but truly, church is a place where we can feel this shame, where we can feel like we are not spiritual enough, where we feel like we're too sinful or too new or too old or too young or on the outer because we're not connected well enough. We can feel like we don't belong. Now we need to keep understanding the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection for us as individuals and as a church community so that this might infect every part of who we are, individually and as a community. You see, at the resurrection of Jesus, a new day dawns and a new community of belonging bursts into the world free from shame. Because Jesus leads the way into God's new creation where we can be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. The true story of the Bible keeps looking forward to the resurrection of Jesus. From the dark moment, Genesis chapter 3, when sin is born, creation is cursed. But there is this constant expectation that life will win. See, just after sin enters the world... The woman who took the fruit and with her husband doubted God, rejected God's good rule over them, thought that they themselves could be like God and they were cursed and judged with death. Just after that happens, the woman is named. Her name is Eve. Eve means mother of the living. She could have been called mother of shame, mother of curse, mother of sin, mother of fall, mother of death. She's called Mother of All the Living. Right through the Bible, when death looks like it wins, God brings life. Genesis chapter 9 comes just after the great flood, where God saves Noah and his family and the animals. And after that death, Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, God says, Be fruitful increase in number and fill the earth. When it looks like death wins, God brings life. Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. They are oppressed. They are given a really hard time. It looks like God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, with the promise of being a great nation, are going to be wiped out. But Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, became so numerous that the land was filled with them. How about the redundant mention of growing and fruitful and multiply? 
Jeremiah chapter 23, written in the time of the exile. The prophet Jeremiah holds out the promise from God that they will again be fruitful and increase in number. When death looks like it wins, God brings life. God's plan is to raise up a new community of belonging who live forever. Now let's look at some key passages in detail. Come with me now uh, to uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's easy to find in the Old Testament. All the prophets are at the end of the Old Testament and the three fat prophets come first. Okay, I don't know what their body shape was, uh, but their books that they've written are fatter than the other ones. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So if you found a, a skinny prophet, you need to go forwards in the Bible. If you found a fat prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, keep going until you get to the fat one, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel was prophet to Judah. Was Judah northern kingdom or southern kingdom? Do you remember from the video sermon? Pointing up, down, middle... Judah is the southern kingdom, the southern remnant. Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they're wiped out by the Assyrians and there's this remnant in Judah where Jerusalem's the capital and they're taken into exile in Babylon. Um, Which fat prophet? Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet to Judah. And in Ezekiel chapter 36... I told you to go there and I didn't go there myself. Here we are. Ezekiel chapter 36... Uh, God, or or the prophet Ezekiel, is holding out uh, God's promise. I'm going to read for us from verse 24. Verse 24, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. I'm going to ask you to remember a key Bible 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 reading phrase at the end. See See if you notice it. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Here's God's promise. For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and you will not and will not bring famine upon you. And it goes on. Did you hear the key phrase? What's the phrase? I will, I will, I will. This is what God will do. And the first part of Ezekiel 36 is all about the judgment that God brought on his people because they were an adulterous nation, because they had turned against God, because they had rebelled against God. It looks like death will win, but God is promising new life. Ezekiel 37 then has a very vivid picture of this promise. It's a picture of a valley of dry bones. Not just where you walk across a a deserted paddock and see dead sheep carcasses or a couple of horses or cows. This is mass genocide. This is generations of generations of dry bones piled up, lifeless. This is a picture of Israel dead in exile. And the prophet speaks God's word of promise, that the bones will come back to life. Let's look in chapter 37, verse 7. 
Ezekiel 37 verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I'll settle you in your own land. Then you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. This is a wonderful picture of God's people being raised up and gathered to be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Now, this is not just a picture of somebody who is dead in a grave being raised up to new life and being in heaven forever. This is also a picture of God's people as a community having new life, new community, free from shame, being God's place, under God's rule, under God's blessing. So let's have a look in verse 24. My servant David, the Christ... The eternal king, verse 24, will be king over them. They will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees under God's rule and blessing. They will live in the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, the Christ, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant, a promise that will never end. I will establish them and increase their numbers. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. What a wonderful picture, promise, true story of life and belonging. Now Isaiah speaks God's promise with an image of darkness and light. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. Isaiah is the first fat prophet. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah talks about the darkness of death. The world in sin and shame is dark with death. But it's not the end of the story. Isaiah goes on to talk about a child being born, a son being given, a descendant of David who will be a wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, who is going to establish God's kingdom and God's people. Jesus bursts through the darkness of the cross 
into the light of the new day and new life. As we come over to the New Testament, Peter's speech at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 helps us to understand how Jesus' resurrection fits in the true story of God, the world and us. As Peter explains the coming of the Spirit, he talks about Jesus' resurrection and how it fits in. I've used this uh, verse here from the NASB Bible because it helps us capture what's going on here really well. Peter says, God raised him up again, God raised Jesus up again, the Christ, putting an end to the birth pains of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. The birth pains of death, it's a surprising phrase in this passage, and this is one of the few English translations that captures this phrase, the birth pains of death. It's like Jesus' tomb is a womb that gives birth to eternal life. You see, Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus rose up from the dead and he walked out of the tomb, that is so much more than a miracle of him coming to life again. Of one man, even the God-man, coming to life again. It is so much more than that. It is the birthing of resurrection life for all God's people. Jesus' tomb is a womb that gives birth to eternal life. Now, this is the amazing implication of 1 Corinthians 15. This is quite possibly my favourite chapter in the Bible. If you thought I'm excited already, hang on now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is one of those chapters we need to read and reread and reread and know well. It's tempting now for me to read all 58 verses. I'm not going to, I'm going to draw you to uh, verses 20 to 22, we see the amazing implication of Jesus' resurrection being the birthing of resurrection life for all God's people, because Jesus is raised, all who belong to Jesus are raised too. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first fruits being the, being the harvest, the sign that spring is coming, uh, the, the, the Canberra blossoms, even the ones that stink a little bit like cat. Uh, think in terms of harvest images. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have already died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. One of the objections I had to becoming a minister was funerals. Apart from anything else, it was having to do funerals. I hate death. Uh, Like I said in the video sermon a couple of weeks ago, I'm one of those people who'd rather keep death at arm's length, not be in the middle of it, not think about it, not talk about it. I never wanted to be the one who throws the first handful of dirt into a grave at burial. 
I never wanted to be the one who closes the curtains at a cremation. But now having done, I think it's 53 funerals and attended more than that, at the funeral of believers, I've come to appreciate this moment. You see, because while my eyes see death, while my eyes sting with the tears of death, my heart can sing of resurrection. And, and, and what makes my eyes fill with tears the most is singing of the resurrection. Of reading out 1 Corinthians 15 as we stare down and cry in the face of death. The resurrection of believers is not a mere sentiment to help us accept death. It's not a, a prop that holds us up on sad funeral days. Usually in an order of service at a funeral, I'm given the opportunity to speak words of comfort. And I believe the Gospel does speak a word of comfort, and there is a comfort, but usually it's about saying something that will help everyone to feel a little bit better. But the reality of Jesus' resurrection is no mere sentiment that makes us feel better. It's a sure and certain reality that we will be resurrected because Jesus is bodily resurrected. What is dead will be made alive again. Not just in a word picture story like in Ezekiel chapter 37 as an image of Israel and God's people, but those who are dead will be alive because Jesus has defeated death. We have defeated death because Jesus lives, we will live. Now this has a wonderful present reality for us. It's so much more than a future happy story for you and for you and for you and for you that, that one day we will be alive again. This is the true story for us and a true story now of new life and new community, a story of belonging that bursts into the world with Jesus' resurrection. Come with me please to Acts chapter 2. We skimmed over it a moment ago. Acts chapter 2, and we were here several months ago, a few months ago when we were doing our series, Reach Out series in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit comes, as Peter talks about Jesus' death and resurrection and the implications of that, we see here that the resurrected Jesus is gathering a new community of belonging. So down in verses 38 and 39, we see that there is this calling in of people who are far off. For all whom the Lord our God will call, there's this calling in of people to repentance, verse 38, and this belonging to Jesus. People there that day are added into the, the community of disciples, are added into the visible church, are added, added into the, the gathering of believers. 
And in verses 42 to uh, 47, we see that there's this community that, that gathers, that is devoted to one another, that is sharing with one another, a picture that many of us love and appreciate. Now, this runs against the culture of our society and our natural way of thinking. We are so conditioned to think independently and individualistically in our world. But Jesus changes us to be radically different. Jesus gathers us into a community that thinks other person. Jesus leads us to think community. Now hang with me for here for a moment. It's not too difficult for us to apply this kind of thinking to family. Uh, at least for now, in our culture, we have a cultural recognition and commitment to family, where we put family first when family's working well. It's not easy, we always need to keep working at uh, being family, but even in the midst of an individualistic and an independent kind of thinking that we naturally think, it's, it's not too difficult for us to think about our family and invest time with siblings or aunts or uncles or grandparents or grandchildren or children or spouses. We have to work hard at living it out. But there is a greater cultural challenge for us to find and live out belonging in a church community. Belonging to a church community goes against individualistic and independent kind of thinking. I think this is where Kurt Thompson uh, is right, though. We're all searching for belonging. Everybody in the world is searching for belonging. And this is really, really hard in a culture of independence and individualism. I think we and people around us really feel this amidst the rise of individualism. We're on this constant quest, this constant search to find places where we belong, communities in which we belong, communities where we're accepted, communities where there is no shame. Now let me make a quite a sharp observation about church. Uh, this is not particular to new life. Uh, this is churches, uh, th th this includes other churches, uh, but I'm certainly observing this here uh, with us. Uh, we're searching for belonging, but we don't find it in church. We're searching for belonging, but we're not finding it in church. This is a pattern among churches like ours that have grown recently and this uh, draws on some of the National Church Life Survey data uh, that has just been released in recent weeks. We participated in that about 12 months ago. Churches like ours that have grown in the last four to five years. In the last four years, New Life has grown by 50% in its membership. Four years ago, there were about 200 of us that belonged to New Life. At the moment, there are 300 that belong to us. We've grown uh, by almost 50%. Yet, Sunday attendance remains the same. Around about 170 on an average week for us. Same as it was four years ago. Now, I've checked in with uh, other churches that have experienced the same kind of growth and the same kind of thing is happening. 
those churches that have grown by about 50%, their Sunday attendance is actually the same. Huh, what's going on? Now here's what I think. I think our churches have a belonging problem. There's a reflection of a belonging problem in the world. Okay, now this bit that I'm going to say now is not coming out of the Bible. This is me trying to reflect on who we are in the world and reflect on my own heart. You see, in the world, as we search for belonging, in a belonging-hungry world, there's all kinds of places that we'll go to find belonging. Uh, Good causes, getting on board with organisations and events that, that raise money and awareness for all kinds of different things. They're all around us. Our shared experiences... And social media helps us uh, even have shared experiences with people when they're not actually present with us, uh, going through the same experience face-to-face. Uh, I saw yesterday afternoon the, the police motorbike ride coming in, and almost every fifth motorbike was holding onto a stick live-streaming. It's a shared experience in a belonging-hungry world. Uh, we are into and we promote personal development pursuits and achievement going in events where we get, we get a medal and feel good about it and share the experience with other people. A good thing. Sporting teams. Communi- this is sounding like my weekend, okay? Sporting teams, community groups, the, the Temple of Westfield, uh, d- making an oasis down to the coast and, and being in a brass band even. Now, these are all, all good things, but I think in them... As we participate in them and as we see people around us participating in them, we're searching for a belonging in a belonging-hungry world. But at the same time, we spend less time in church community. These other things will compete with the amount of time that we can spend in a church community. And let's be honest, Church community disappoints us. Church gatherings on Sunday can disappoint us, can hurt us, can we can find it hard. We can find it hard being here with other people. We can get upset with other people. We can be offended. We can be let down. We can be all kinds of different things and we we can feel less belonging here. Uh, That that experience of belonging that we read about in Acts chapter 2... We only feel that sometimes, don't we? And, and you might ask the question, well, why, why, why bother? <laughs> why, why bother with this? Uh, here's a hard question that I've asked myself. Would my life be unaffected if I gave up on Sunday gatherings? Would my life be unaffected if I gave up on church? I could keep my faith going. I could keep reading the Bible. I could listen to sermons on the internet. Would life be unaffected if I gave up on Sunday gatherings? As we feel all these things and these different places of belonging, we need to keep working hard at gatherings that nurture our belonging. We need to maximise opportunities to connect in with one another and see one another being built up. Because of Jesus' resurrection, He is gathering us and Jesus makes belonging possible but only time and presence and effort will nurture it. I think belonging is nurtured 
by time and presence. Think about having joined a sporting team or a community organisation or um, uh, dating somebody and being connected to a new family or starting at a new workplace. Think about somewhere, a new community that you got involved with. And your belonging there is nurtured by time and presence. It's not immediate, it's something that takes time and presence. This is family funerals for me. Uh, my family is uh, somewhat disconnected and I live a, a quite a way away from all of them. And over recent years that connection or disconnection had, had, had become greater. What I worked out is that far more important than going home for family Christmas or going home for family birthday parties or even family reunions was to be there for funerals because everybody in the family is at the funeral and so I can connect with everybody and we can do time and presence together. And now as two of one of my grandparents and my great uncle who is like a grandparent uh, as they've died in recent years, have seen my very disconnected family, extended family, become more connected because funerals have caused us to spend more time together, time and presence. Church needs to keep making the same investment. Now we can think, we can think about times and places and spaces and everything that we, we kind of meet. Um, don't hear me uh, right now saying, oh, we have to be at church on Sunday morning, okay, because I don't think the book of Acts tells us that, <laughs> uh, and I certainly don't believe that. Uh, we need to be gathered, and we can think about when do we gather, how do we gather, how frequently we gather. We, we can have all those kind of conversations, and, and I think churches need to do that more and more, and we need to do that more and more as the culture around about us keeps changing, um, uh, uh, not to be alarmist, but I reckon our days of meeting in public schools are less than a year or so away from stopping. Um, uh, we have been cautioned to say nothing about marriage or same-sex marriage uh, while we are using this building. Uh, the, the, those, those, the, the days of how we gather together Christians may change. Uh, you would have seen the, the article about um, the Presbyterian Church in Ballarat. Uh, was on front page of some newspapers. Was on Sunrise. Um, I know. I do know the actual story. I do know the minister uh, involved. Um, uh, it, 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 it's, it's a sign of the challenge of meeting together as Christians. Um, that church is picketed. Uh, this morning, uh, media on the doorsteps, all kinds of different things. We are going to need to keep doing all kinds of thinking about where and when we gather, but most of all, we need the death and resurrection of Jesus to keep gripping our hearts so that we might know and love the new community of belonging that he offers. I've been really challenged and encouraged thinking about this in Matthew's Gospel for several weeks. We've dipped in and out of Matthew's Gospel in this series and I've just kind of kept reading uh, Matthew's Gospel over and over uh, and I preached on this a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, visiting the church in Goulburn and talking about uh, their future as they get smaller and smaller in number. There's this constant promise running through Matthew's Gospel of Jesus building his church and gathering his people. 
And it doesn't matter whether you're two people or 200 people or 2,000 people, Jesus will do what he has promised. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promises to build his church. Jesus says, it is my church and I will do the building. I will do the gathering. Remember, church is the word for gather. And in Matthew 28 that we read just a moment ago, Matthew 28 is the launch day for Jesus' mission for gathering and belonging. Here, after Jesus' resurrection, he gathers his disciples together, more than just the twelve, and he sends them out in a gathering mission together to belong to Jesus. Now, for us today, it could get really interesting with the changing culture around about us as to how we do Christian gatherings and how we do Christian mission, how we do belonging together, how and when and where we spend time together. But we are being gathered and we belong to the one who says, Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus will keep doing what he has promised. Jesus will stay with us. And Jesus will keep gathering us to belong to him and belong to one another.